Well, let us uh, read together Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Hebrews 2, 5. Listen now to the Word of God. For He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Amen. Now, two weeks ago, we were considering uh, the opening verses of this chapter, and we were, you'll remember, acknowledging uh, the question that the author of Hebrews is raising, and that is the question of very uh, practical and pastoral nature. That question, how will we in the church escape the judgment of God if we in the church neglect a great salvation. You'll, the reason for this argument, you'll remember, was that God did great things uh, through uh, the work of the angels as they brought the law of God on Sinai. Uh, but you'll remember that this is a shadowy arrangement compared to the substance of what you and I have in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament were the elementary school years of walking with the Lord uh, compared to you who, as the New Testament says, are mature in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are in a much superior position today with the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and you're being united to Christ by faith in Him. And so the argument is really from the lesser to the greater. If God brought judgments in the wilderness against people who rebelled against God and what they saw at the Red Sea and at Sinai, and if they were willing to make a golden calf and rebel against Moses and Aaron and have judgments brought against them for their grumbling and their murmuring, such as fiery serpents and a plague and the earth swallowing up the people of Dathan and fire coming forth from the altar uh, to those who brought their censers and a wasting curse with those who grumbled that they had no meat to eat. If God did all of that in the days of shadows, the argument that the author of Hebrews is making is how much more should we as Christians fear God? Because you have been given far more light than the people of the Old Testament. You you have Christ himself and the spirit of Christ. The, the, The work of Christ was testified by the miracles and the power of the Spirit that Jesus performed here. So the application is this, and and this is all by way of introduction. We must reverence the Lord. 
If the Lord proved himself to be a consuming fire in the Old Testament, well, how much more in the New? His spirit brought about the death of Ananias and Sapphira in the church. So we need to fear the Lord. Now, we fear the Lord not as a slave, but as sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, there is to be a holy reverence for God. We are not to take God casually. Uh, It is easy to do because it's familiar for us to come into this place and to to worship as we always have done and to sing the songs that are familiar. But we have to remember, what does the Bible say? We are dealing with a consuming fire here. We are dealing with one who is holy, holy, holy. We are dealing with one who is infinitely righteous, who is omnipotent. And so we need to reverence the Lord and praise him uh, with fear and with trembling. Again, not as slaves, but as children who recognize the eternity that they have been delivered from and the eternity that they have been freely given by the grace of God. So what do we do? Well, we need to learn his ways, young people. You need to become familiar with the commands of God, and you need to know his ways. We're living in a very antinomian age. That means it's, a, it's an age in which the culture is against righteousness, against the law. Anti means against, uh, and then nomian means law. And antinomian means you are against the law of God. You are against the ways of God. Look at our culture as I prayed in the pastoral prayer. What are we doing in this month of June? We as a nation are celebrating that which God has said is an abomination. That is antinomianism. We are celebrating. How many times do we have to watch commercials? How many times do we have to see the corruption of the rainbow? The rainbow is a wonderful symbol. It's a symbol of God's mercy to us. It's a symbol of his covenant, of restraining his what? His wrath. God had just destroyed the world because of the wickedness of the the world. And he gave us that rainbow as as a sign of peace. He was hanging that up that he would enter into this covenant whereby he would no longer judge the world with with water any longer, and he would allow the world to continue. But what are we doing? We're going back, aren't we? We're abusing that covenant. We're abusing the grace of that covenant. And we're abusing the very symbol of God's long-suffering nature with sinners. We live in an antinomian culture. We are in a day of backsliding, which is a a malady that all of us as Christians face from time to time. And how do we deal with this? Well, we have to deal with it by fearing the Lord, reverencing God through prayer, through scripture, listening to sermons, reading good books, keeping holy conversation and company. Now, when we get here now to verse 5, now we see that the author of this book is demonstrating that Christ, who is king, is going to govern the new heavens and the new earth. He's making an argument here next, and this is still kind of subsumed under the argument that Christ is superior to the angels. Remember, what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with a book that is being written to people who are ethnically Jewish. They were raised under the dispensation of the old covenant. They were raised as those under the law. And you may wonder why spend so much time 
talking about angels. Well, let me give you a couple places for you to look. Look at Acts chapter 7. Because I know this seems strange to us because it's probably not in, in the mind of a Gentile something that we would normally think about that Christ would be thought of as inferior to an angel. But you have to remember these are people who receive the law of God and look at what Stephen says in Acts chapter 7 verse 53. Stephen says when preaching the gospel to his fellow Jews, he says, you received the law as ordained by angels, and yet did not keep it. And then also, if you look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. Galatians 3 and verse 19, the Apostle Paul, who is defending the gospel against Judaizing in this letter, he says, why the law then? Why did God give the law if he was only going to fulfill it in Christ and that the ceremonial and judicial applications of it uh, were, were abrogated with the state of Israel. Why the law then? Well, look at verse 19. It was added because of transgressions, having been, and there it is again, ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. Now, who is that mediator? Well, that mediator is where we come to chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews. The mediator the author is arguing is Christ, and Christ is greater than the angels. The angels, angels are ministering spirits for you, the elect. And they do have a role to play in helping the people of God. Angels are disembodied spirits, in case you're wondering, what exactly is an angel? An angel is a disembodied spirit. They don't have a body, boys and girls like you do. They're not made of flesh and blood. Now, they can take the appearance of a person. They can take the form uh, of a person. We see that many times where angels come. We see Abraham sitting in his tent on a hot day, and three angels come and appear before him and tell him of what's coming. So they can take the appearance of a man, but these are servants. It, it is Christ, though, who is the mediator, and Christ is superior to the angels. So the argument is here, guys, don't go back to the old covenant simply because life is getting hard in the church. And we do need to be sympathetic to what it was like to be an ethnic Jew in the first century. First of all, you had to realize there were divisions in their synagogue through the preaching of the gospel. Paul would preach the gospel, and divisions would arise in the synagogue between whether Jesus is Messiah or not. This division occurred not only within the church, but within families. Jesus even told the people that the, the, the day would come when, you know, uh, mother-in-law would rise up against daughter-in-law, and father-in-law against son-in-law, and that the enemies would be those of his own household. He, he was speaking about the division. Don't think I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring division, the Lord said to that Jewish audience there. He, he was speaking of the division that would occur over him. That some would see him as the rock and they would build their life on the rock. Others would see him as a stone of stumbling and they would fall to their own demise. So you have to realize that a lot of suffering came to the, these early Christians. A lot of them were suffering disagreements and persecutions within their own family, within their own communities. Many of them suffered economically. They were cut off and cast out of the synagogue for following Jesus Christ. And so we, we need to be careful not to judge these people 
who were tempted to go back. We need to feel the weight of why they might be tempted to want to put the the cross and the humiliation of the cross aside and just go back to their Judaism that they had formerly known. Because it would make their life easier. And so the, the author of Hebrews is, I think, trying to implore them to remember Moses, that the reproaches of the people of God were superior to the court of Pharaoh. Don't give up on Christ. Don't give up on your salvation. Don't give up on your justification found in Jesus Christ to go back to the shadows and the ceremonies of the law. And Paul had the same argument, didn't he, with the the Colossians. He says, I fear for you because you're going back to do not taste and do not touch. You're going back to new moons and Sabbaths of the old covenant. And you are making Christ of no avail if you are making much of circumcision. And so this was a battle for the first century. And I know it seems a little foreign to us. But I do want you to see the supremacy of Jesus Christ through this message by way of application. You might not be suffering in the same way that they were. But that day may come. And you may be tempted The Bible says that some spring up quickly and then wither away because of the sun, because of the the suffering, because of the persecution. And we need to say, well, how can I get my roots deep down so that I can thrive even if hard times do come against the church? Well, you have to ground yourself in Christ. You have to see the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So it's not irrelevant for you as a Gentile Christian. There will be days of trial. There will be days of testing of your faith to see if it be genuine. And and you must rely on your Savior. You must see him as far above all else and superior to all else. So that's why in verse 5 he says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. That is, what he's saying here is that the angels are not the ones who are going to govern in the consummated state. Angels are ministering spirits to help the elect, but they will not be the rulers in the new heavens and the new earth. Who will rule? It will be Christ, and it will be Christ's people with Christ. We will be seated on thrones with Christ in the new world to come. Angels will still have a role to play as those who worship God and those who serve the elect. But they do not supplant the glory of Christ and those who are in union with Jesus Christ. Remember, Christ became a man in order to save men. And thus, as Christ is elevated, we are elevated with Christ. You see what the apostle says here in verse 9? But we do see him. We see Christ, who was what? Made for a little while lower than the angels. Remember that man has less power than an angel. Angels are strong. We were made creatures like an animal, in a sense. Not that we are animals, but we share a commonality with them. We are subject to death. Uh, Because of sin. But Jesus was willing what? He was willing to become a man. 
He was willing to be made under the law. He was willing to be made a little lower than the angels. In what? So that he would suffer for us. And now that he has suffered for us on the cross, God has been pleased to raise him to the right hand of himself. And we are seated with Christ in the heavenly, says the Apostle Paul in another letter. The angels will not govern. It will be Christ who governs. The angels are not the mediator of this new covenant. It is Christ who is the mediator of the covenant. Angels do not sit on the throne with God. It is Christ who sits on the throne with God. It is Christ who shares the glory with the Father in the Spirit. So why then does the author of Hebrews in verse 6 through 8 take us through Psalm 8? We sang Psalm 8, boys and girls. You remember a few moments ago we sang Psalm 8. And what you find here is some quotations in verses 6 through 8 from Psalm 8. Now let's look at Psalm 8 just in its original context, and then I want to see why it is that the author of Hebrews applies this psalm. And then once we do that, I have a number of applications from John Owen, the great John Owen, that I want to leave with you before we close. So we're going to look at Psalm 8 here and and its use in Hebrews 2, and then we're going to close with some applications from John Owen. And so Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. So he begins with praise, praising God. Even the infants are praising God. And then he goes on to verse 3. Now this is where the author of Hebrews is picking up on this psalm. He says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, he says, what is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. What is man? That is, as he speaks about the wonders of the creation, the power of God, as he contemplates the the stars and the sun and the moon and the mountains, the deserts, the oceans, the lakes, the forests, the fields, The Antarctic. I don't know. Maybe he knew about the Antarctic. I don't know. The trees, the insects, the birds, the lions, the elephants, the giraffes, the whales, the cheetahs, the orangutans, the chimps, the apes, all of this. How many birds are there? How many insects are there? How many fish are there? How many mammals are there of various kinds? You know, that Star Wars bar scene has nothing on God. That's just an imitation of what God does in making an animal that has a trunk, you know, yay long, that that can make a hippopotamus, and it lives off of plants. That's weird. How do you get so huge? You weigh tons, and you eat plants. How long, how wide is the universe? This is what the psalmist is contemplating, and he says, when I think about all this, who am I, O God? I'm so small. I'm seemingly so insignificant, and yet what? God does consider man. Why? He's been made in the image of God. And he considers the son of man because we are redeemed in the Christ, the son of man. God remembers us for the sake of 
the eternal Son who would become a man and save us from our sins. Man has been made in the image of God. He has various properties, even though we are fallen. We have value and properties that are God-like. That's why man was made on the sixth day. It was the crown jewel of the creation that we should be that, what the theologians call the vice regent, the, the, the one who reigns in the place of God. We would have dominion over the animals. We would have dominion over the earth. We would subdue the earth. The psalmist goes on, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, we bring it back to Hebrews here. And what is the point that he is making here? He says, in verse 8, he says, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. And then he tells us here, here's the commentary on Psalm 8. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. That is what the author of Hebrews, and this is good exegetical work. This is good hermeneutics. Everybody pay attention to this. What is the author of Hebrews doing? He's saying Psalm 8 speaks of Christ. He is saying here, who is this son of man that is being spoken of here? It was a psalm of David, but this is really about the greater David, isn't it? When I consider all that God has made, the heavens and the earth, who are you to think of man? And yet what? You have sent your son to become a man in order to redeem us. And this one who was subjected to the fall and all its cruelty, though innocent and righteous. Now he has been elevated above it all. And so the author of Hebrews is saying that in subjecting all things to Christ, he left nothing that is not subject to him. That is, Christ was there in the beginning at the creation with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And then in the fullness of time, he went into the creation as the Son of Man. He was there in the beginning. He made the mountains. He did, as we sang in Psalm 104, he was the one who caused the, the waters to recede and the mountains to rise and the valleys to sink low. And now that same son of God has become a baby. He has become a man. He has been conceived in the womb of the virgin and born of her yet without sin in order what? In order that he could reign, that all that he created would be subject to him as the God-man. But notice what the author of Hebrews says. He makes this theological point, though. He says, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. He is saying Christ is the author of the creation. Christ, as our mediator, has come into the creation because we have fallen in Adam. Christ, the last Adam, the second Adam, has come in our place to rescue us from the curse and the wrath of God. The creation, Romans 8, Paul says, is what? Groaning. It is groaning. Why is it groaning? Because it's suffering, boys and girls. The earth and the heavens are wearing out 
like a garment, like an old garment. The earth and the creation are wearing out. That's the, you know, the one thing that the environmentalists are missing. You know, they are preoccupied with Mother Earth. They are preoccupied with global warming. And here's a point of apologetics for us as Christians. There's a reason that there are storms and tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes. It's because the earth is groaning. It is subjected to sin and the consequences of sin. And the only hope is not to cut carbon emissions is to put our faith in Jesus Christ who is going to redeem the new heavens, the earth and the heavens, and make it a new earth and a new heavens. Christ is going to replace. He's going to purify. He's going to replace. He's going to make like new. And yet the author of Hebrews says, but not we're not there yet. Not everything has been subjected yet to him. We do not see the world yet subjected to Christ. It is because the gospel follows the pattern of Christ himself. Christ came by way of humiliation. After his humiliation, he was exalted. So it is with the church. We follow Christ in humiliation. We are still in the now and not yet. We have tastes and foretastes of glory, but we are still laboring, aren't we? In a world of sin, in a world of sorrow, a world of suffering, a world of trials, a world of tribulations. This is why life is hard. This is why you're sighing so much at home is because you also are participating in the fallenness even though you're redeemed. Because we do not yet see everything subjected to Christ. But the author of Hebrews is saying, hold on though. There is the now but not yet. Christ having accomplished his work in it, he will complete it to the day of redemption. He will see to it that all things are yet subjected to him. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes this argument when speaking about the resurrection of Christ. This is why the resurrection of Christ is so important. We tend to think of the resurrection of Christ in a very isolated way. Jesus was raised. But really, Christ is raised. uh, We need to think of the resurrection of Christ eschatologically. That is, the the resurrection of Christ is, is not just like some kind of little proof that he is the Son of God. It's far more than that. The resurrection of Christ is the beginning of everything new. It's the beginning of the whole renewal of the universe. The, the, the world and the universe, which is under this cosmic curse because of the, the fall of Adam, is being renewed through the second Adam. And where does it begin? It begins with Christ being raised from the dead. So he says, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man came the resurrection from the dead. That is, he's talking about Adam and Christ. The first Adam, the second Adam. The first Adam, the last Adam. For Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That is, all who are united by faith to Jesus Christ will be made alive and will be partakers of the new, he- new order, the new heavens, the new earth. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Notice that language of Paul. Christ the first fruits. That, that is, Paul is saying Christ's resurrection is just the beginning of the future glorification of the heavens and the earth. 
And then it says Christ the first fruits after those, that those who are Christ at his coming. That is God's people follow after him. And that's why theologians speak about the now and the not yet. We are living in that period of time where we feel the tension, don't we? We're redeemed, we're justified, but we have indwelling sin and we feel tension about that. We, are, we get the foretaste of glory that is coming and yet we have so much suffering in this world still. It, it, we, there's a tension there. We, and that's because we do not yet see Christ subjecting all things to himself. Now he has subjected sin and death and hell and Satan to himself in his own resurrection, but the outworking of that is still in process as the gospel is going out and more and more people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Christ is building his church. The kingdom is growing around the whole world. It's leavening its way from tribe to tribe. But we're, <clears throat> we are not yet there just yet. Let me, <clears throat> excuse me, keep reading. <clears throat> Verse 25. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> But each to his own order. This is verse 23. Christ the first fruits and those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power for he must reign. Christ must reign, and Christ is reigning right now at the right hand of the Father. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. That is, Christ is building his church, he's building his kingdom. He is eschatologically pouring out his spirit. He's taking dead sinners, making them alive in Christ, transforming their lives, sanctifying them, preparing them for future glorification. And he is doing all this, but at the end, he will make death, the last enemy itself, subject to him. That which he did in his resurrection, in himself, he will do for you, his people. So that you who are united to Jesus Christ, you also will be delivered from death. And then he says, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. This, look at verse 28, and I'll close this part with this verse. When all things are subjected to him, that is when Christ is come back, he's returned, he's brought about the new heavens and the new earth, he's raised the dead, he's judged between the wicked and the righteous. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. So that God the Father would be all in all through Jesus Christ. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, guys, we're not there yet. Don't abandon Christ too early here. Don't reject Christ and go back to the types and the shadows because you're suffering. Because Christ isn't finished yet. He hasn't subjected all things to himself yet. He's still in process as he reigns at the Father's right hand. So don't run ahead of Christ or get discouraged and impatient with the coming of Christ. But persevere as Jesus persevered, as Jesus was willing to suffer for you. Take up your cross and follow after him. Now let me give you here about seven applications from John Owen based on what we've heard so far. Application number one is, is this. Number one, we have to recognize from this text 
the implication that Jesus Christ is our head. Jesus Christ is, is our head. Now, why is this important? Because Christ is our head. We are his body. That which Christ has undergone, we too must undergo within ourselves. But we want to maintain that vital union between ourselves and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul says, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. Notice what Paul is saying here. That all things are in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. He is the head. He's our head, but he is the head of all things. Therefore, stay in union with Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 22 says, He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So keep your communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as you need a head to live and move and breathe and work and play, we need Christ. Christ is our head. We are his body. And if we are to thrive, we must maintain that union and communion with Christ who is our head. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. We are to work on our sanctification because Christ is our head from whom the whole body being us, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Do you want to grow in grace? As a Christian, then keep close to Christ, who is your head. Number two, Jesus Christ is your only head. Jesus Christ is your only head. <clears throat> Paul says we are but servants. We are but ministers, servants of the king, servants of Christ. The Pope is not the head of the church. Christ alone is the head of the church. We don't need another head to represent uh, the Lord on the earth. Look to Jesus Christ. He is the only head. Number three, Jesus Christ, the head, gives you vital influence, says Owen. Christ, who is the head, is the head of all vital influence. What does vital influence mean? That is, it is the spring of life. That is, Christ supplies you with the grace you need to live for him. Jesus Christ, being your head, gives you all the grace. Where does the grace to live the Christian life come from? It comes by way of Christ. It comes through Christ, as Christ gives his spirit to us. And therefore, we have communion with him. And as we commune with the Lord, the Lord gives us those gracious influences to abide in him, to abide in his word, and to have Christ abiding in us. And if you're struggling with a sense of abiding in Jesus Christ, here we need to look by faith to Christ as our head to give you that gracious influence that you need to live out the Christian life. 
So when we come, for example, to the Lord's table, what do we do? What do we think about? We come and we, we think about several things. One, we think about our sin and our need of grace. But we think about Christ. We don't leave it with where we are and, and the shortcomings of ourselves. But we go and we look to Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who's on display here. It's Jesus who suffered and died for us and now has been raised in glory for us. And to know that this table is a table of blessing. We're not here just to you know, stimulate our minds, but we are here to receive grace from God. Just as food nourishes the body, we come to the Lord's table to receive nourishment from our head, nourishment from Christ, that the Holy Spirit uses the table of the Lord to bring blessings and influences in our life that we so need to live out that life that we have to live in Christ this week. There are going to be a lot of challenges at work. You have to listen to guys blaspheming and cursing. You have to listen to guys telling dirty jokes in the office. You have to endure so much out in the world. And where are you going to get the grace to, to live like Christ through it all? We get it from the Lord himself. Number four, Christ is the head of the government of the church. And as the, the head governor of his church, we may not add anything to his worship or to his word or to his regulations. The church has to be governed by the scriptures. We cannot add to the word of God. We cannot take away from the word of God. We cannot soften the hard edges of the exhortations. And we dare not diminish the sufficiency of Christ in him crucified for sinners. We, do not, we dare not add anything to salvation nor take away, but we preach Christ in him crucified and we govern ourselves as Christians and as a church according to the way the Bible says to, because he's the head and he has given us his word. And then also number five, Jesus Christ is your immediate head. That is, you do not need a priest to mediate between you and the head of the church. But you are a kingdom of priests, the Bible says. The priesthood of all believers. You can go immediately as a poor sinner into that place where only the high priest could used to be able to go. And that with blood, and that only one time a year. Now you as a poor sinner have been given this tremendous privilege in Jesus Christ to go into the inner veil in prayer. Isn't that a great motivation to pray? To go where everybody else used to be forbidden. To be able to go to that secret place where only the Father sees and only the Father hears because Christ is your head. He's your high priest. He has paved the way to you for you to come to a seat of mercy. Christ has put his blood on the mercy seat. It's not the blood of a goat or a bull or a calf any longer that prefigured the coming of Christ. It's Jesus who has torn the veil at his death from top to bottom so that sinners can go as children to a father. He's your immediate head. You don't have to come to me to get grace. You don't have to come to me and say, well, how many prayers do I need to pray, pastor, in order to get right with God? You don't come to me and, and say, you know, how many are fathers, shall I say? You go to Christ. 
And you pray to him and you say, like the publican in the back of the temple, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. You don't go through the agency of a sinner to get grace. You go to Christ himself. Number six, we're almost done here. Number six. Because Jesus Christ is your head, you are free. You are free from being subjected to the commandments of men. You are free to serve Christ according to the word of Christ. Do not bind your conscience to the traditions of men, even if they have the appearance of wisdom. But bind yourself to Christ and his word alone. And then finally, serve Jesus Christ in a spirit of holiness and reverence because he is your head. Serve him. Worship him. Take the worship service seriously. Don't check out mentally when we're singing a hymn. Don't check out during the pastoral prayer, but seek with everything that is within you to enter in, to think about what I'm singing, to pray with the pastor or the elder who's leading us in prayer, to recognize we're having dealings with God because of Jesus Christ. Amen.